We are recording. We're here in uh, Birmingham the day after the, or the morning after the, our first British BMX Hall of Fame with Mr. Simon Dando, long-time friend. Simon? Morning, how are you? Good, good. Little, little tired. Yeah. I didn't drink, but I feel like I've got a hangover just from talking and just laughing all night and, you know, being... Getting the whole event done and that, but um, how was it for you? It was good. I think a few of us drunk for you, so you're okay. Right. So, yeah, that was such a night. I had face ache all night. Just met so many friends, people I haven't seen. For, I was surrounded by 10 or 12 of my best friends in the world, and there was another two or 300 people I haven't seen in 30 years. It was uh, it was such a night. It's, uh, yeah, it's incredible. It's going to feel the glow from this one for quite a while, I think. What was the, um, on the awards, any, any special highlights for you? Anybody in particular? Uh, I... Uh, I I liked the way it was started with a couple started and finished with two very poignant ones with mm-hmm. Stephen first and, mm-hmm. and then Dave Moore to finish. So it was uh, it, it wrapped things up quite nicely. It was a, yeah it was, they they were sweet. They're the heart, they pulled your heartstrings. Out. Yeah, really, no, good, really good. Absolutely, absolutely. Anybody that you was like really like oh my god is is here? I haven't seen him for so long or yeah, her. Most everyone there. Is, right? Yeah, about three hundred people I haven't seen in thirty years. Yeah, it was incredible. So I just but but like most people there, we we all went up to each other and said. Who are you? Right, yeah. Like, oh shit, you're one of my best friends back in the day. I'm so sorry. Right. We're all changing. Everyone's everyone's old, bald, and bigger. It's quite funny. But it feel like there was a lot of people I hadn't seen in a long time, and not out like like yourself, not on social media. But obviously, we still still stay in touch. But it seemed like two minutes of talking to somebody you haven't spoke to in thirty years. It's like yeah, straight yeah. back to how it was, you know, when we were kids. It was. It was like the. Ex- I mean, the word family was used a lot last night, and it yeah. felt like the extended version of that. Because I say, so all my best mates are there. And we don't see each other enough. We can we can spend a year apart, and you jump straight back into that friendship instantly. Yeah. And sometimes you can't service those friendships as you wish, but you know they're there and they're as strong as they always were. And yeah. it was like a big extended version of that. It was it was awesome. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. It's fun. First of many. Hopefully, you know we can. Yes. We yeah. can build on that. Thanks and uh, thanks to you boys for all that hard work. Oh well, we, we, we put into it. We appreciate you guys all coming <laughs> and supporting us, and you as our merch man. Thank you very much <laughs> with your fun. your experience of surf shops yeah. and stuff, yeah. folding t-shirts folding and t-shirts done very down to the T how you did everything. <laughs> so I enjoyed it. I'm glad to be of use. Appreciate all your help on that. Well, let's dive into a little bit of your history because yeah. you do have a lot of history. Me and you have been friends since. Probably the mid eighties, mid eighties, and think, yeah. hung out for a, a yeah. long time. Um, back them days when when the days of MBMXA nationals and Pontins, and we always had so much fun after Pontins friends and <laughs> groups. So we'll get into all that. So first, um, how did you discover BMX? You was in the southwest, right? And yeah. How did you get into it? I, I grew up in Paynton. I was born in Bedfordshire, but I grew up in Paynton in Devon. Um, and as a lot of kids did back then, you slapped a plank on some bricks down the road and you saw how far you could fly. Yeah. Um, and we had all sorts of crappy little bikes. I had a Tomahawk, I remember that. Oh, yeah. I remember smashing my spots all over that the first time I tried to ride up a curb. Um, yeah, there's some boys down the street for me, a couple of brothers, Kevin and Darren Murphy, they were, they were just down the road. And we had, they had this cobbled together bike. It was bits and pieces, all scrap. But we used to go and find banks and jumps and ramps. And, and then one day, um, Kevin turned up with his magazine. It was a very early BMX magazine. Right. And I think the article I remember fondly was something to do with somewhere down near the New Forest. Someone was pulling a really big skid near a car right. park and there was a blurred photograph and there were, all of a sudden there was this sport that encapsulated everything we'd been doing for a couple of years. Yeah. Being young and daft on, on bikes when we'd get in the air. And so all of a sudden there's this BMX thing and it's like, wow, there's actually it's out there. Someone else is doing it and we're like, well, we need to keep going. We need to need to find out how to get into this properly. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how it started. Um, yeah, just I mean, once we got beyond that stage, 
I think it was, I think it might have been my 15th birthday, could have been 14th, I'm not entirely sure. Um, my, probably 15th, and my dad came down, mum and dad had divorced, <clears throat> then dad lived up country, and dad came down and said, what do you want to do today? Um, let's go out for your birthday. And um, I heard about this new BMX track that op was opening at Newton Abbott horse race, horse racing track. It was inside, it was next to the uh, stock car track. So I said, I want to go and see this, because me and the boys have been doing this, and there's this new sport. Got down there, and it was opening day, and they had, um, there was two blokes, Brian, Brian Ryle, I think it was, and Eric, we used to call him Eric the Half a Hat, I don't know why, it's something to do with the Half a B joke, I think, but these two guys had set up this business, a couple of entrepreneurs, um, both of them had boys there that, that rode the track as well, <clears throat> went there on this first day, hired a bike, hired a helmet, and they had Viceroy bikes, they were oh, like white ones with red branding on them, Yes. Um, and they had a fleet of those for hire bikes, and they had, I think it was might have been Wildcat Dietron helmets. Okay, logos, that, yeah. Sweaty ones that every kid had worn. Yeah. And just went belting around the track and it's like a pig and shit. It was like, wow, here it is. And on that day there, I actually asked them for a job and they gave me a job and I started the next day. I used to get the train from Paynton to Newton Abbott every day on my racer, on my racing bike, shove that in the guards van like you used to be able to do. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't do any more because no. they won't have that. And I started sweeping the track and fixing up the bikes. I think I could do turn the puncture around inside of five minutes. Oh, wow. I was, and we had this fleet of 20 or 30 bikes and maintained those. Did that, I think I worked there for a couple of years. Yes, yeah, so, um, it was it was very good, really enjoyed it. I was outdoors every day doing what I wanted to do, learning, riding, meeting other people. <clears throat> Got to meet a good few there, and then from that, that grew into racing. I think I used to borrow bikes. I think I actually started racing on the higher bikes. Um, Can you remember your first race? No, I can't remember the first race. Um, I, I think, I'm pretty sure my first bike was because um, um, these guys look to import, they're looking to make money from BMXing. Um, and they got hold of a Japanese bike company called Maruishi. Oh, yeah, I remember, yeah. Teardrop yeah. frames, I think they were, Chrome yes. ones, black logos. And um, one time, uh, second season maybe down there, there was this bunch of kids came in from uh, a school in Totnes. It was one of those, um, I can't remember the name of this, it's one of those schools where they got a different style of teaching. and fairly affluent families send their kids to these schools and they go in this slightly different approach to a bit more of a, a, not a hippie five way, but it's not your general run. Anyway, these kids from the school turned up and this big black lad called Nicky was there. Yeah. And we all recognised the talent in this kid and it was immense power. Nicky Dalton. Nicky Dalton, yeah. And, and they put him straight in the Marowishi factory and I remember, I think I bought a frame of him at trade price and then, then ended up cobbling bits and pieces together to make a complete bike out of it. So, but yeah, I spotted Nicky, we spoke to the, the owners, they spotted him. And then he used to come down as often as you could get there from school. And um, yeah, I remember- He was British champion within a year, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he raw power, raw yeah. power, no talent. I spent a lot of time with him. I, I don't know why, but I took it upon myself to try and teach him things. And right. He, he, yeah, I'm not, not claiming anything, but it was like, wow, this kid's got so much. To yeah. Him. And that was cool, because he was from down our way. I mean, he, yeah, in a, in a super tough age group, I think it was a 1983, I won't think, I know it is, mm. he, at the 1983 British Championships, um, just, Nobody had ever heard of him, no. and he came in, and I think it was Mark O'Connor was the, the top guy at the time, Patterson rider from the West Midlands, okay. and uh, Nicky and him battled, but Nicky uh, ended up winning, and then obviously went on to get onto red line, yeah, and yeah. you know battled with Wayne Llewellyn and Andy Welsh, and Paul, Paul Ray from Dan Cornwall, yeah, another guy, bumped yeah. into the Ray brothers last mm. in the last two years, been living next to them for, been living next to them for nearly thirty years, and never actually hooked up, and then bumped into them because I remember. They had a track at a place called St. Day. Yeah. Their dad had a scrapyard mm -hmm. and they built a small track on this. I remember going to that one day. That was cool, the inaugural meeting there. But um, yeah, that, that, the whole racing thing down there evolved and did all the Southwest regionals. Um, 
all around Devon. Back then, southwest was Devon, Cornwall, Dorset, and all the way up to Bristol. I think we got as far as um, the Bristol track at Parkway, was, the, and then Southampton was as far as it went, all the way down to Penzance. Yeah. So there was a big region. So yeah. it was almost like doing nationals when you went to those regionals. And, and what was became South Central, that was a pretty strong bunch of lads from the Bournemouth pool area as well. And we wouldn't see them till the British Championships, a lot of you guys. You'd like you'd show up for the British Championships, you know, 83, 84, 85, and there'd always yeah. be these guys with the green, green, green plates, plates like, and like, who the heck is this guy? Yeah. You know, yeah. there's one guy in my age group, 84, he was on a red line as well. It's kind of like a Nicky Dalton type rider, Martin Hughes. He was in my final, big, strong guy yeah. on red line. Yeah. Bell, yeah. yeah, we battled with him in the 84 British Champions in the Never yeah. saw him again after. Yeah. yeah, But it was like that. Obviously, Paul Ray came up through there and went on to... <laughs> Paul Ray was like you. He wasn't yeah. the big rider, but he had a lot of skill and talent. Good gaze. Really and, and, yeah, he battled smooth, with yeah. Jamie Staff and Lee Pigston and all those guys. Yeah, so, that, yeah, that, a lot of great riders from down there. Wasn't it for them, Nicky Dalton and Paul, that was a hell of an age. Yeah, there's a lot, lot of good riders. So you, how do you progress into nationals and stuff then? Tell us about that. Um... Well, the regional thing went pretty well. Like 84, I got southwest number one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I must have been racing 82 or 83 because I had at least a season before I got there. Yeah. Um, didn't race in 85, picked it up at the end of 85 for the winter regionals. Uh, got eight, number one 86 as well. Um, and then went to a few nationals because by then I was riding for BMX Superstore down in Plymouth. Right. Um, there's a shop there run by the Arscott family, Simon and Matt with the sons. Can't remember the mum and dad's name. What I do remember was that um, we had a team van. It was a Sherpa van. You remember those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Crummy old British Leyland things. And um, yeah. and this blue van, I remember we it had bench seats down the back. Mm-hmm. And we had, the roof was covered in bikes. We had a bike rack on the bonnet, two bike racks on the back doors. And on these bench seats running down the van, there was got to be eight or ten kids with all your helmets under your, on your knees, your bags under your legs. Right. Three people across, four people across the bench seat. There's ten or twelve people in this van. And we'd get up at pre-dawn in Plymouth. We'd all meet down. I get I get a very early train, go and join them, or get picked up on the way up. And we'd go off to do these distant regionals. And I think a few nationals came in on that one. The shop was actually sponsored by Yes. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think that was about the only time I ever got in a magazine was a BMX Superstore was on the Yes advert, and that's as near as we got to getting a yeah. getting any coverage. Yeah. But, uh, but no, that was good. So nationals after that one. Um, you was more MBMXA, right? I was all MBMXA. I think yeah. I was speaking with um, Dave Stevens last night, and I think we did three or four UK nationals. I think we did Bretton's Park one time. Yeah, I slept there on a hot summer's day in the back of the car. That was a bit weird. But um, yeah, on after after sort of racing down around the southwest, wake um, doing the all around Devon and Cornwall. I I was working in a leisure centre in Paynton, um, and then I found a job further up the line in Milton Keynes. I was part time in the summer. That was the other summer job. Yeah, and I was looking. I'd just done a college course on recreation leisure management which is basically work, work in a leisure centre um, so I needed a full time job and a job came up in the trade magazine in Milton Keynes and as I was born in Bedfordshire but barely spent any time there mm. just went straight I left home never never thought about leaving home in my life I was 19 I was like right I'm gone right. went up to MK found a flat worked in the leisure centre now there's one of those sliding doors moments in your life, I, I don't know about you, I've got three or four points in my life where there's a fork in the path and mm-hmm. if I if just looked the other way, life would be to, so different. It's only been a subtle shift and it would have all gone the other way. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> when I went to the British Champs at the uh, Derby Greyhound Stadium one year, again, it was one of those train journeys, All the you put your bike in the guards van, yeah. leave it there, didn't lock it, no worries in the world. Right. Five, six hours later, get to the guards van again, get off the train and go and do what you're going to do. Got pulled into Derby Stadium, uh, Derby train station, went to the guards van, and there was three or four more BMXs there, all flipped up on this sat on the handlebars and saddles. And like you did, you're like, 
what's he got? Yeah, yeah, what, what is what, it? What cranks, what pedals? He's looking for all the new tricks up. He's eyeing these bikes up and down. Yeah. And these three lads came in to get their bikes. I was like, oh, boys, British champs. Yeah, yeah, we're doing the same thing. Right. I'm up from Devon. Might see you around. Um, and those are Steve Keach. Oh, right. Steve Driver. Yeah. And uh, jumping. Uh, what's his name? No, he worked in John Lewis. Uh, Jonathan Hearn? No, because that's Boris Becker, isn't it? Um, met these three guys on the train. Anyway, saw them sporadically around the meeting at Derby at the Greyhound Stadium in between eating donuts and racing because that right. powered those meetings on the donut van. Yes. And a day, all that sugar. Right, sugarish. The shit we used to eat and get away with it as kids. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I met, met those guys on the train. I don't know if I saw them on the way back. Um, and then that winter, um, my, aunt, my auntie, mum's sister, lives in Milton Keynes. We went up to Milton Keynes to go and see Auntie Linda. I grabbed her you know, lady shopper bike with a step-through frame because I was near another BMX track I hadn't seen. I was in MK. Mm-hmm. So grabbed her bike, told Mum and Linda I'll be back later on, and then went riding down the redways and went and found the track. And I got there. It was the middle of the week. It was an overcast day, early early winter. And I got there, and there was a big um, a big lorry there dumping some aggregate on the floor. It's yeah. a track surface. Yes. And it, and Steve Keach was there overseeing it because he worked as a he worked as a digger driver back then. Yeah. And he was actually there. I was like, all right mate, it's you from the train in Derby, isn't it? And seen you for a couple of months. So yeah, so we had a little chat. I said just come down to see the track and he was talking about this, that and the other. Um and not long after, I think the next spring I actually that's when I picked up the work um and went and moved to Milton Keynes. Nothing had happened at the track with me and Steve, but one day again, I was in the city centre, I was outside McDonald's in central Milton Keynes, opposite the cinema, and I bumped into him again, and he was there on his, uh, had his, Small had his Ford Truckman topped pickup truck we had from work, I was like, mate, we've got to, you know, we've got to keep, I'm going to come and hang out with you guys, I need to ride with someone, so it, I, there wasn't mobile phones then, I don't think, maybe those were just starting, anyway, hooked up with them, found the best friends of my life, and spent the next... I think it's about five, maybe six years living in Milton Keynes and Banbury. Yeah. And oh, Banbury, so, I love your club, wasn't so, it? Yeah. yeah, Banbury Cross-Ups afterwards. Yeah, so that's the club I joined because that's where they were. So I, st- I went, moved up there and started racing West Midlands mm-hmm. um, and ended up, so I found the best friends of my life, Steve Keach, Steve Driver, Dave Stevens, um, uh, Big Dave Mallows, who didn't really race that much, but he was, you know, he came along to all the meetings with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, who else did we find then? I think I'm moving on from my News and Abbott pages. I actually need to go back to the News and Abbott bit as well, the southwest bit, because there was the Brian Curtis link up as well, because that was another thing from down that way. He was a lovely, lovely chap there. But um, here we go. Yeah, Steve Driver, Steve Keats, Jonathan Hearn. That was his name, so there must be two of them. Yeah. Big Dave Herman, Pete Brazier. Herman's here today as well. They all used to ride, but not so much. But most of us kept the racing thing going. So, um, yeah, we, I mean, we rode every day of our lives back then, like you did. We, I did in Devon, and when we moved to Milton Keynes, we'd finish work, grab, grab a bite to eat, get out, we'd ride all night, just belching around the city centre. Weren't you, like, doing some modelling stuff as well in between all this? <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> in between. When I was, yeah, I, I was working at the leisure centre, and I actually, I don't know how I heard about it as a casting for something. I, I saw, I met some, I don't know, Someone suggested this, and I actually went up to an agency in Northampton, right. and they were casting for um, for someone to work with Levi's. It was just after they launched the 501s, and yeah. Levi's started to put the chinos out. And yeah, it. And I actually had a flat-top haircut at the time, so it looked a bit G.I. Joe. Super blonde haircut. as well, right? It was fair, yeah, yeah. it wasn't grey. Yeah, that was yeah, still fair, <laughs> still fair, fair grey now, isn't it? Um, yeah, so um, yeah, went to this went to this agency in Northampton. Yeah. Actually, it was only in-house modelling. It was nothing big and famous. It wasn't TV stuff or the rest of it. What it was, you went to... Levi's the the sales force would sell to. That's it. The, the people who develop the range would sell to their sales force. 
So you go to the you go to the annual sort of conference, the biannual conference, and you're a clothes horse really. So you spend a week in a nice hotel, a weekend, just wearing the kit, so the the, the agents could see what the kit looked like, and it just went from there. So I worked for Levi's, and from that I worked worked for Wrangler, and then Lee Cooper jeans, and then got some other bits and pieces in that one. So when I was <clears throat> that was near my Banbury times actually, because I was I remember I was over in Banbury living with Graham Bricknell. That's another guy from that gang. Yes, he's now over in Canada. Right, your side of the, the Atlantic, isn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was working part time in a clothes shop and doing bit of modeling not much nothing fancy but uh, it was good Levi they designed because you were the one in them if they changed the tailoring or the shape of the trouser or the top or something they, I think I had Levi's designed on my back end for about three years which is quite funny yeah because I haven't got very long legs and God knows how they decide to fit the market around what looked good on me in the UK but that was, that was cool yeah, yeah no absolutely got some free clothes out of it now success then so like say you started doing nationals and stuff how what kind of who were some of the guys you battled with oh, what would you say some of your your best years, maybe? Um, well, after the Southwest 84 and 86, number one, 87 moved up. Um, I remember, I think the first meeting that year was at Bromsgrove, I seem to recall going to that place there with the, there was a sports playing field there, big old wire link. I only went there, I went to that Mud National in 84. Oh, that was Wordsley. When it rained like hell, was that? Or no, it was okay. Bromsgrove, oh, right. it was, because that's <clears> when some of the Americans guys were there, some of the American GT team were there, and... Um, there's pictures in the magazine where uh, some of the older, even older riders were running with a bike because the track was so muddy and wet. But that was, yeah, that's the only oh, time I ever went. Talking about running with bikes, I was, I was regaling this story last night. Back in the very early days racing in the southwest, um, the first BMX track in Exeter mm-hmm. was um, at a place called Pinho. And it was a fairly flat track in the corner of this playing field park. <clears throat> and the first race meeting they had there, or the first race meeting I can remember going to, the start was I think two or three inner tubes had been cut to a straight right. line, right. tied them together. There was a stake in the ground at gate eight or gate one. And yeah. someone pulled this big rubber band across the track and that and they let go of that and that was the start gate. So, right. so rubber the band. guy the guy on the inside had a, a half second head start and the guy on the other yeah, yeah, yeah. wrapped around his it wheels. Further for it to get there, that, yeah. That one rained so much I don't think anyone got past the first burn before I had to pick the bike up because there's so much right. mud. Blocking the back when the brakes. There's up. quite a bit of that back then, you know. Yeah. It's the norm. Yeah, it was. You know? It didn't matter, did it? We didn't care. We wanted to do and ride all the time, didn't we? So, but yeah, going back to the the national thing, moved up, moved up to the middle of the country from the southwest, and that was eighty seven. Mm. So I did race West Midlands that year with all the boys. Cemented the friendship, and we had so much fun. We just going around. It was there was a lot of there was a lot of social alongside the racing as well. But um, I got yeah, I got West Midlands number four in my first year. Mm-hmm. So. <clears throat> Went from a green plate to an orange plate, mm-hmm. and then um, I was running. Um, yeah, got four that in eighty seven, and then we did. The, we really hit the national circuit properly. The next year, we did absolutely all of it. We did all of them rather than a few of them. Um, we couldn't get. We never got up to Humberside or any of that stuff. And I don't think we got down to the depths of the far of, of the east of the country. But um, yeah, eighty eight was my best year. Mm-hmm. Um, really went hard at it. Really enjoyed myself. Um, ended up with number five. Oh, that's great. Who got number one? Well, I don't know. I can't remember that year. I, you may have those records. I'm sure I do. Yeah, yeah. I can, I can, I can look that up. Uh, during all this period, you started your own number plate company. Then, so tell us <laughs> the inspiration behind that and yeah, that was, the name and everything. You back. sponsored me. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, it, was, it was quite a loose sponsorship, wasn't it? We just yes. Gave plates to all our mates. And yeah, yeah. What it was um, when I was in the southwest. Um, a big part of the story, and I actually skipped over that, must go back to that, was um, spending a lot of time with Ross Hill. Right. Ross raced down that way. <clears throat> and I think I first met Ross when he was about eight years old at the meetings, and mm-hmm. as you do, you just chat to the families and the rest of it. And we kind of took, we used to, 
I say we used to ride every day in Milton Keynes. We used to ride every day when you're a kid. From, yeah. You know, from your teens, I think from your teens upwards, you're out there on the bike. You get home from school and that's it. Dump your school kit, get on the bike, come back at dark. Mm. So we had a gang of us riding all, all around Paynton, down the swing parks, down the pipes, down Paynton YMCA. They had the biggest skateboard in England at the time. Mm-hmm. It collapsed under its own weight, so we had yeah, <laughs> the leftovers. We didn't get the big bowl. That was back in the, that was back in the very early eighties. But um, yeah, Ross Hill, um, eight-year-old kid, I think when I first met him, and he, he used to come riding with us. He used to come riding with the big boys. So I kind of looked after him. I took him under wing a little bit. Yeah. And then, and then they go and watch this sort of young protege go flying, flying straight past you and just winning everything. Yeah. He's like, yeah. You're doing all right. And then this little kid, you you look after him. He's like English champion, British champion. European high numbers, yeah, king of dirt, nut job, and everything else. So there was a lot of good times. And one one year, nine. When was the when was the Worlds at Slough? Which year? Eighty six. Eighty six. <clears throat> Went up and raced the pre worlds. Yeah. And me, me and Ross got on the train in Paynton, mm-hmm. um, and we had a two man tent, two bikes, right. And we got the train up there, and we did. Again, last night regaling the story, we camped in a city centre. Right. Can you imagine doing that these days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You stabbed, shot, murdered, oh, you got no Paranoid, all park, yeah. All the parks we camped in, was it Robin Hill Park in Derby? Crew City Centre? Yeah, yeah, Crew was in the middle as well, yeah, yeah. yeah. On old slag heap, when I was yeah. old heap. I remember going back from Crew National, we had black bogeys, it was black. Yeah, there was like yeah. a big swimming pool there, so I would swim there as oh, well, that, yeah. That was part of the social for all our nationals, we were always going to find the nearest swimming pool. So yeah. That's how you got a shower. Yeah, no, it was, yeah, yeah, summer. after practice. And, and, and it was always trying to get trying to get the whistle blown by the lifeguards to do bombs or jumping. Right. Or get a nail. But, um, yeah, went to the pre-worlds in Slough, getting back to the hot plate story. Um, <laughs> made the main, still got a little circular dish to yeah. for that. that's a big race, the pre-worlds was, yeah. It was good, I didn't qualify for the worlds, I was gutted. I, you, know, wanted, you always wanted to do all these big ones and yeah. test yourself and see how yeah. the Americans really were. Um, and at that meeting, I'd just got my, as 86, that was my second year of being Southwest number one. Um, and they'd just gone into colour plates for regionals then. Yeah. And we were green, and I, yeah. green number one. <clears throat> I didn't have a plate for the next season. I saw Todd Corbett there when he was riding for Murray. Yeah, all green. And yeah. he, had, he had a green crit plate, number yes. one on it. And I talked it out of him. Bless him, he gave he had, gave me that plate. I don't know why, it was very generous of him. Yeah. But I was so thrilled, because this was trick. It was, he had all his sponsors' badges on the stickers mm-hmm. on the front. There was no crit plates over here. It was a really bright, vibrant green. Yeah. I loved it. So rode that plate for that year. And then... Um, after moving inland, somewhere down the line with that one, um, myself and Dave Stevens, I don't know why or when we decided it, but we couldn't get hold of crit plates from the States. Hot plates had already been and gone by then, and we liked the name hot plate, but mm-hmm. it had all the other connotations of, you know, sort of word, yeah, yeah, yeah. word play. Um, and we, Dave actually, um, he went and found some sort of polyurethane sheeting. I don't know where he got it from, but um, I'm is someone who used to use it for another process in a factory, and we used to buy the ones at the top and the bottom of the stacks so of the ones we had. If you look on them, they were the ones resting on the wooden pallet. So one side would actually have some wood grain, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. stack above it, but on the smooth side, we just go. We went out and bought sheets of Fablon. We bought the old um, Speedline tape. Mm-hmm. We put down the side of the car. The old yeah, yeah, five mil thick. We got some scalpels and we just laid the Fablon down. Learned how to make them with no bubbles. Put the lines around to copy the crit plate look, mm. and we actually started by putting the hot plate name on there with letters. Um, yeah, the letters was it letters set when you used to rub the 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 clear uh, acrylic sheet and the lettering come off the back almost like reverse version of. Okay, tracing. I remember. Yeah, and we used to lay it on letter by letter by letter. Oh Those wow, things were quite thin. It's like a transfer on a model aeroplane. They're very thin, so they were quite scratchy. <clears throat> so we 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 put. 20 or 40 quid together which is quite a bit and went to a printer's and we we all we bought some stickers with that same font 
so we could actually lay these clear stickers on in white or black. Yeah. And then it saved us doing the letter set stuff. So um, we, yeah, so we actually- And you did the numbers as well. Like you would do a number, you like put my number on as well. Like it'd be a gold we, background or whatever. I, and I think what we, we definitely did custom colors. Yeah. That, that's where we did well for selling plates. When you were cycle craft, we had, yeah. we had all the, you had all those around the main plate in the middle, had all the sections around the side, those two two top, two bottom, and yeah. on the sides. So we did the pink and the blue for you. We could right. Do, and then when they brought out the gold plate thing as well, for, so yeah. we bought some gold shiny. You did a lot of gold ones for me, we yeah. Used to, we used to buy the really nice italic numbers. Yeah, big <clears> we, number one. We were, good, we were good at sticking them on. We could put them on nicely and smartly. Yeah. We'd always do that and finish that one off. But um, but they always stood out because like a, a big, big number, like all the old pictures, everybody that had gold plates and, yeah. and, and national That's, rankings, it just always looked so yeah, cool. All, all the photos I've, I've been putting out to you and the boys recently. Yeah, all the so ones, good. All the photos I have, we used to go to the meet. Do you remember that chap who did the photographs at the Nationals? Yes. What <coughs> was his, his name? Son. I can't remember his name. But you, but you got a lot of pictures from him then because you've been sending them to me. Every time we saw a picture. I'd love to track that guy down. Man, he might, yeah, if he's still got the films. Yeah. His son did the pictures and you could buy the, pic, the photos. Yeah, the they'd pin them up, wouldn't they? Yeah, like for like, like 20p or something, yeah, wasn't 50, it? 50, 70, yeah, we'd, everything with the hot plate, we bought the lot. Mm. And that's why I've got a decent selection of pictures from back in the day. And we had so many friends who were happy to accept the plates. We, I think we had, we had somewhere in the region of 10 to 12 UK number ones or British champions on yeah. the plates. And we are just hacking these things out of plastic, sticking right. the Blue Peter project. Yeah. And, but it was so much, I think we were knocking them out for... I think about seven quid for a plain coloured one, and when we did the foil, the, the gold foil ones, they were nine or ten quid. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but myself and Dave, we made those, and we spent all the money on beer. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Everything we made, we drank. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, there, there was some pathetic attempt at accounts one day, and at the bottom of the page, it said it just said drinky poos, and it all got right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, at the time, though, we, I don't know if you remember. Do you remember when Animal came out with the Velcro watch strap? They looked yes. Like the Velcro, that we saw one of those. Someone had one. So we went out and bought some webbing and some Velcro. Right. And, oh gosh, there's a lad from East Midlands, Rich, I think his name was. Really, really cool kid. He had one of our plates. And his mum used to stitch these watch straps. And so we were knocking those things out as well. He's oh, like, I see. Yeah. That's when, just after Animal started, we started ripping them off. Right. And um, we never put any badges on them because we didn't get any embroidered stuff done. But that was just another little sideline. Again, yeah. it's just more beer. For seven quid, you could get pissed then. Yeah, so yeah. You get half drunk at the weekend. That was very cool how he did that. By the way, Paul Parry still owes us seven pounds for his plate. Paul, if you're listening. We've never forgotten that. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Um, okay, so. You know, Pontins was a big thing for our gang. You know, it was a pon- Pontins for the ones that doesn't know at the end of the season. There was a holiday camp um, in the northwest Morecambe. in Morecambe, uh, which, you know, was kind of a... Middleton Towers. Yeah, Middleton Towers, which people would go on family vacations. They built a BMX track there. And if anybody uh, paid attention to BMX Weekly, uh, probably BMX Bi-Weekly by then in the mid-80s, yeah. um, you know, a lot of Mike Pard and Andy Preston did a lot of test stuff yes. there. There was a track there and they did a lot of the shoots there and they would have a race there once a year. So it was basically end of the season. Everybody would go and stay for a couple of days. We would race it, but it was really just a big drinkathon. And it was, it and it was so much fun. Wasn't it, was it? it was Everybody would just get absolute <clears throat> drunk. And then the track was long. So the next day, everybody would Hanging. race and puke. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. But some of our best stories from, from the 80s came from that place, you know. Some of the catchphrases that you still live by and laugh yes. by. Yes. Because do you, remember, do you remember on the entrance to Pontins, there was a pub down the end of the lane? Yes. Do you, 
Jim Bowen, Bullseye, that's his pub. Oh, he said I didn't know that. that yeah. yeah, that was his pub. Right. I think we went in there once. Because you would roll in to check in and then some people would just go straight to the pub before you even go to, yeah, to yeah, your room, you know? Because that was the yeah, all young, early 20s lads. And the, main, and the main party was on a big ship, right? It was called the SS Berengarnia. That was it. So <clears throat> it was a massive ballroom. And there'd be arcade across the so you go play video games. on the roof, so it looked like a Yes, ship, it's like the Titanic, wasn't it? Windows, yeah, it was, it was a real throwback to the, probably the 50s, I would have thought. Yeah. But the fun we had there, we, used to, we were nuts. We used to, um, before every Pontins, we get so excited when you because it was always the middle mm-hmm. weekend of October, wasn't it? October. The it was days. like after the last national. Yeah, that's why yeah, it was like the big we, let your hair down. That one, and we'd always go and stop at a bottle shop in Milton Keynes. We'd buy cases and crates. Yeah, get in the boot, clinging the bottles are clinging all. The I mean, this there. is the eighties, you know, mid to late eighties when nobody had any money, you yeah. know. So you even petrol money, you'd like, okay, I need a couple of quid from you, a couple of quid from <laughs> yeah, you, and then. Yeah, tell them. there's it, some stories on that in the, the later days, but right. Pont is incredible fun. One one year we we went out in Royston with Big Dave, Dave Mallows. Um, <clears throat> went to a bar there. It was either the week before or maybe the night before, and we all sort of collected because this gang of friends we were spread in an east west line across the middle of the country. We had Dave and his gang over in Royston. Mm. Then there's a bunch of us in Milton Keynes, and then a few of us in Banbury. So that's a straight line east west across the UK, and that was our party line. Yeah. Um, and we on one of the one of the biggest pontins runs we had. We we went to a wine bar. In, in, in Royston it was. I hope the owners, well, they're never going to hear this, are they? <laughs> um, there was a Budweiser sign inside their front window. Now, the, the pub was only sort of one one shop wide, but this Budweiser sign, probably eight foot long, two foot tall, yeah. red and white sign on Fomex, something like that. And it was right near the front door. And at the end of that night, we, we got this thing, we slid this sign sideways out through the door and down the street, and then we ran off with it and ran back to Dave's house and hid that thing there. And then the, that's it, this, we were building stuff up for Pontins, that was it. Because then the next weekend, we went out in Banbury and we went to a club there. And they had a really good uh, front door mat with a, some sort of beer, or might even be cigarette branding on it. This thing's probably six foot square. So we left the club that night, rolled that thing up and ran home with that, put it on our shoulders, put it in the car. Um, and I think we had some, some barriers for some roadworks and everything. So that was outside our Pontins door of the chalet. And that one Pontins... We booked two of us in and we had nine people staying in our two-man chalet. Wow. I mean, that was always the thing. Want to get as many people in the room as you can. Get away with Two in a bed. Murder. People weren't yeah. aware of how, how stupid and bad. People wouldn't even sleep in the bath, wouldn't they? Well, that was yeah. the story last night. I can't believe it. Keith Joseph. Right. He was smart enough to realise that the floor was going to be carnage. He bagged in the bath. Keith, right. Keith yeah. had the bed. Right. He had the bath for a bed. Yeah. Saw him last night. We went over that story again. I mean, he's... he's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's Strong little dude. He even back then, yeah. He fitted the bath back then, but he wouldn't get in it now. Right. He's so, he's so broad. He's, yes. Yeah, he's this big, strong guy now, but that was hilarious fun. So we had all these barriers outside. We had a doormat. We had a Budweiser sign in the window. Windows are getting broken, food fights in the food hall. Do you remember mm. the food fights at breakfast when everyone's hung over? Inside? Well, the after party would all, you know, stay, everyone would stay drinking and stuff. Then once everything got closed down, it'd be back to the rooms, you yeah, know. When so you get into those crates of beer, which you'd started before. But yeah, we, I mean, we, we got to Pontins and we started drinking, as you say, we'd drive up the lane to check in and we started drinking then. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And we didn't stop drinking until we left Pontins. And we yeah. slaughtered. I, th- I think I, I pretty much whole shot at every race I was in at Pontins, and by the time I got to the first corner, my legs were telling me to get off, mate. You know, I mean, yeah, I couldn't get down the second straight without falling apart. There's some great pictures from that place, and yeah, the the memories alone. Um, so, did you race much like so into the late eighties? You probably kind of slowed it off right into the nineties, right? Yeah, um, yeah, 80, 88, I got that number. F- 80, yeah, eighty eight. You got the number five. Eighty nine race with that on a plate. So it must have been. I think nineteen ninety. I kind of. And you moved back to the southwest by then. We no. We found surfing. As okay. A, as a gang of friends. Um, mm. there was in. It was in uh, BMX action. There was. A, the, the, that's another of the, the, these uh, sliding door moments that, that formed 
the path in life. There's an art, there's an article about Eric Carter. Yeah. And the article was oh, with the surfboard. It was titled something along the lines of, sort of by weekend BMX world champion. Yes, I remember the article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a picture. Of He's on the cover of CW or something, I think. Board, board under his arm, walking down the beach. Yes. Hunting the beach in the background, sort of fuzzy out of focus. Yes. And we're like, there's another California sport there. Mm. Should we go and try that? And then pretty soon after that mag came out, um, I didn't make the first trip to Newquay, but Dave, Big Dave, Little Dave, Keechi, a couple of others who went down to Newquay to mm. go and try this surfing thing out. And they came back with these stories that like, surfing's brilliant, Newquay's incredible, it's so much fun, the place is party central. Mm. It, it went off, we had such a ball, there was women everywhere, the sun was out. Yeah. I was like, well, I really want to go down, I couldn't afford to get down that week. And I think um, my first chance to get to the coast was actually the weekend of the British Champs that year. And I was like, you know what? got to go this is my first chance I'm going I've got to try this surfing it's going to appeal it's in there somewhere I've got to try this yeah. so I bailed on the British Champs so I, I don't know why because I never thought I'd stop racing Right. and I didn't stop then but that first that first chance I had I went down there and we stayed at the Great Western Hotel it was a big day again little day again and it was a riot it was so much fun um, we had to walk all the way across town with these big old ugly hire boards and we didn't know where we were walking the long way across all the beaches and up the stairs by the pub and, but uh, yeah we, we found we found surfing um, we all got very much addicted to it. Um, the peer pressure was fantastic because we all pushed each other riding our bikes. So there was another thing where we all tried hardest to be the best first, to do the first stand up on your board, to ride across the wave, bits and pieces like that. Yeah. And we'd go down there every week, every fortnight if we could. We'd, we were at the coast <clears throat> almost to the exclusion of everything else. So yes, yeah, so, um, BMX and kind of took a bit of a back seat. Um, and when it finally ended for me, it was in High Wycombe. I had... Um, I was on my. I had a JMC at the time. It was actually one of Melanie's old bikes. Right. Old, old frames. That was one of the bikes I ended up with. It had, um, I think, a teardrop frame on that one. I think. Oh no, a JMC Dow Young handlebars. That's it. Yeah, the teardrop cross. Maybe a shadow then. Maybe a JMC shadow. It was a really nice chrome bike. Yeah. Anyway, we were practicing for the national at High Wycombe. Um, there was a triple camel on the third straight. I think was going down here. First straight, come back. Yeah, going down the third. Practicing jumping that one. I was. Pretty crap at jumping. I was good gait. I was strong. I was quite fast in a straight line, but a bit squirrely. I hit the third of this triple camel top with the front wheel, snapped the bike in half behind the head tube, oh. slid down all the way down the back side of the jump. Everything on the right-hand side was grazed or cut or scuffed up from ankle to helmet, everything down the right. Yeah. And I was thinking, I can't wear a wetsuit covered in scabs. I'm done with this. And I quit there and then. That was it. Well, I didn't have a bike. I snapped it in half. It <laughs> buggered. Um, so uh, I never, ever thought I'd stop racing. For me, BMX was for life. And it, it still is, but it's not like the purists like Alan Hill, right. Keechi, the lesson that's, that's keeping it real, keeping it going. Yeah. Didn't do that, but I still have a bike, still still, you know, still ride around on hills to try and keep my lungs in shape, but uh, two wheels don't leave the ground at the same time very often these days. So then you kind of moved down, obviously, yeah. back down there and surf yes. life, right? Yeah, we were we were all going to move down there. All, yeah. all of us were like, yeah, we've got, to lift, we've got to move to the sea, we've got to get good at this surfing thing. Mm. And I was kind of looking, it was one of those looking over your shoulder moments, going, right, guys, I'm... I'm going, then you come in, come on then, I'm going, right, I'm going. Right. Went down there, I had, a, I had a bike at the time, I think it was a Patterson, might have been a Hutch, one of my last two bikes. Um, yeah, went down there with a Maui and Sons backpack and a bike, got down there and worked um, my first year as a waiter in a place called the Hotel California, all stupid names. Right. And yeah, it was, I just served, I served food 12 days in the morning, spent all day down the beach, came back at tea time, serving food again. So that was it. All my friends stayed up here, but they'd come down quite often. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the racing thing kind of went the way of the West. But uh, even um, even down there, over time, there was 
there was a lot of BMX influence in my life and got to spend a lot more time with Ross Hill. Mum, mm-hmm. he still lived in Paynton and he, him and his uh, woman at the time, Lindsay, they had a house on the same estate as Mum. So every Christmas, I'd go up to Mum's and then Christmas night, uh, Christmas Eve, I'd go out with them. And yeah, every Christmas Eve, we'd go out and get hanging. It's yeah. so, so much fun. So I saw, saw lots of Ross back in the day as well. Um, and somewhere, I was speaking to uh, Martin Murray last night, I've got some photos of Myself, Steve Murray, Martin Murray, Ross Hill. That would be good to see them. Um, Kerry Edgeworth, I think Ross, yes. Ross would have been with her back in those days. And for the ones that don't know, unfortunately, we lost Ross, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah tragic that was. That was yeah, really. Um, bless him. Yeah, it was uh, moving times. I was. I got that phone call, and as soon as I picked up the phone, I knew what I was going to be told. It was a weird one. Yeah. Then, sadly enough, Ross was going home from a funeral. Oh. He went to a funeral in Totnes, and he, the gang of friends he was with, they parted really hard. Mm. <clears throat> and yeah, Ross... Ross got so twisted that night, bless him. He he um, I I think no proof on it. He started walking home to Paynton, but he mm. forgot they'd moved to Tynmouth a few months before. He's walking back to the wrong place. Mm. But his mum and dad were still there. So but anyway, yeah, he uh, he decided to take a sleep in the wrong place. And uh, yeah, but yeah, Ross big big part of my life as a grown up as well as as my teammate also. as well on Cyclecraft. You know, yeah. as a little kid on our team at the time, and yeah, yeah nice kid. He was such a great rider as well, well successful. You know, and so and when he got jumping, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, yeah, some great pictures. pictures. Was, it, was it Hastings on the Gap? Did that? Yeah, and there's r- great pictures of him in if, if you know if you read you know uh, Ride Magazine invert. You know, a lot of coverage of Ross then with obviously the Four A brothers. And, yes, and well, that, that, that was awesome because in the, uh, mm. the Millennium edition of uh, mm. Ride came out, and Kai had the front cover of that. Yeah, and I was so touched to see that because I, I, yeah, always some degree of self vanity here, but you know Ross was you know took him under the wing, rode with him, watched yes. him get really good. And then he did the same for Kai. Yeah, and then yeah. Kai made the Millennium cover. I was like, yeah, that's cool. That's yeah, really, really, there's really, some really great like coverage of them guys in the yeah. magazines, you know. Yeah, um, there's and going back to the Nuki thing as well about the BMX influences in life back then. Um, a couple of big highlights. Um, I worked in surf shops, as we said. I worked run some of those for about twenty years. Um, and one year, um, his family came in the shop, and I recognised them, and it was the Moore family, mm. um, Mr. and Mrs. Moore, the girls, and and David, who yes. by then was taller than all of us. Yeah. But yeah, there's this. I was like, bloody. So we got chatting, and they used to holiday every year in town, um, and they'd pop in the shops and say hello. So it's always really, it's always really sweet. Yeah. Old friends. I used to, it used to happen with a few, a few friends. Did you talk to him last night? I did. Yes. Yeah. yeah good. It was ace. I mean, because I, I saw them for maybe five consecutive years, and then I didn't yeah. see them for a couple of years, and finally mm. was like. I haven't seen this summer and I wasn't in the social circle with the boys as tightly well, mm. I, I found out why they were away for a couple of years unfortunately because David passed away yeah um, so so on <clears throat> the next time they came to town which was about two or three years after I'd last seen them mm. it's just a big blubbery crime mess it's, yeah it was like oh my goodness but uh, yes so it was a massive treat to see them last night yes last absolutely last yeah. highlights last night that was one of the biggest biggest ones for me so it was magic to see them yeah and um <clears throat> Jimmy and Barbara Turner as well. Now, that's a strange one because they holiday in Newquay quite often. They'll, they'll just pick a random weekend and go down there for a few days. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to be this trait for a few years. So I'd just bump into them. Right. There's no contact made. I didn't know they were coming down. I was like, hello, you're here again. How are you? And I would get messages from people you know, over the years, you know, like, hey, we're down in Southwest. Yeah, saw one of your friends down there. there. Yeah, it's like well. everybody seems to, even some regular people from school life and stuff would say they went down there and they're like, I met some BMX guy that knows you, you know? Yeah. So well, it's like everybody seems to find you when they go down there, you know? The BMX world's a small world, isn't it? We're, yeah. We're, it's like we're kindred spirits. And we all, it's like surfing's similar. I can go mm. around anywhere surfing around the world and I'll bump into someone I know someone or someone who knows someone I know. Yeah. But yeah, the, um, I was this, in the surf industry in town as well. I worked for a really good company. So we were, we had 
we're in the we're in the mix properly. So you, people always people would always come across you. A lot of the tourists would go mm. around town. They go to all the surf shops. So you had a good chance of bumping into some people. Mm. But yeah, Jimmy and Barbara, it's like, hello, what are you doing here in the shop in the pub down? Right, like, yeah. Well, I mean, hello. Didn't know you were going to be here. We never can't because you know me. I'm, I'm a complete luddite with social media. I'm yeah, like, yeah. No, that's one of my questions. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you've never done social media, so tell us yeah. about that. Not bothered by it. Nothing. I, I, no, not. I don't. I, I find I prefer the old-fashioned values. Yeah, you yeah. Speak, you speak to your friends if it's yeah. Enough, you speak to the people you love. You don't. I don't know. For someone who we all can, to some degree, we can all recognise our own vanities and we all know where we're good and bad. But I find that sort of thing, the vainest of the vain, where you put something out there, just kind of expecting someone, expecting people to come looking. I can mm. understand the value in it when you go searching for old friends. I can see the marketing value for a business. Mm-hmm. But personally, I want to speak to my friends. I want to get the whole message across. Yeah. And that communicate the principles of communication. When two people speak face to face, one hundred percent of the message gets across. Yeah. Because you got the words, you got the voice, you got the intonation, you got the body language, everything. The whole yes. message is received and understood. When you take the face-to-face away and you start speaking over the phone, I think the numbers are in the region like 35% of the message gets lost because the body language is gone. Right. So you've got the words, you've got the intonation, so you've got a very good chance of understanding exactly what I mean. As soon as you go down to the written word, it's somewhere in the region of 35% of that message gets across because you've lost all the other bits. So you're then relying on the people who read that message to work out what you meant. Right. And the potential there for, I mean, this, well, I think it's one of the biggest problems on the planet where we people write stuff down and people take it the wrong way. They mm. don't quite get the whole lot. It takes a really good, um, a person with really good writing skills to get the entire message across so people understand exactly what they meant. True, yeah. So pick up the phone and speak to those people you care about. Don't rely on them to maybe stumble across a message because you just thrown it out there. It's, it's, I don't know, it's one of those things, I've, I'm just sticking in the mud and I'm saying that way. I've no, I don't need it. No. And there's so much background noise in life these days. Yeah. My phone pings all the flipping time anyway. Right. I don't really need any more clutter. There's so much, the best things in the world are just the other side of your handset. Yeah. You take that screen out from in front of your face and it's all the other side of that. It's all brilliant. Yeah. So get out in there as well. I, go I like what you say, but I don't know if I can do it. There's nothing wrong with any of it. We all have different paths. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, I suppose there's, it's come to a point. There's a, there's a degree of being obstinate as well. Cause it's like, yeah. I've, 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 I've sort of made that rod to my own back and I'm like, well, I haven't needed it all this time. So it's nice when people send you a message, you haven't seen something or mm. seen a screen grab. I don't want to be sitting there pouring over the phone seeing if something's going on. It's nosy. No. It's like the modern version of um, the, you know, the old wise tittle-tattle over the garden fence. It's right. Massive, <laughs> massive version of a load of gossip. Yeah. And I think there's some, there's some, there's some more um, wholesome things in life. I would love to be on your page. <laughs> Maybe one day, I think, while I'm still in, embedded in BMX, it's, it's hard for me not, not to, to disconnect like that. But I totally respect you doing that and uh, everything, you, everything you just said. Uh, still surfing all the time. You still travel the world. You tell us a little bit about your job. You're you've got a really cool, yeah. interesting job. And, I, I finally got yeah. the job I wish I'd found in my twenties. Yeah, I, I work in film and TV. I'm a prop hand. Mm-hmm. Um, my well, my job title is a dressing prop hand. We we dress the sets on 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 film and TV shows. Now, set might be someone's house that we've we made it look like the art director wants it to look. Yeah. Um, we could be decorating. I, I've likened my job role. Someone said, what is it? I said, it's, it's kind of, you mix up a removals man, mm-hmm. a handyman, and a window dresser. Mm-hmm. And we pretty much do that. If, you know, if this hotel room was a, was a set, we would have brought in the beds, we would have brought in the furniture, the pictures on the walls. <laughs> we would have taken down everything they put up and probably would have put up something that's pretty much the same because that's right. how the art directors seem to go. Yeah. It's a well-paid job 
with with sensibly short contracts. When I first heard about it from a friend, he, he mentioned some figures and he said, yeah, it's, most films are seven months long and then you can go surfing all winter. I thought, damn, I need, Perfect I need you, to yeah. find this 20, 30 years ago. Yes. Lots of money and loads of time off, thanks very much. Um, so I, I harangued that guy for a couple of years and then I got a call one day, went and worked on a Channel 4 thing with Dawn French for my first week. And it's a network game. The more people you know, the more chance you've got of getting work. Um, it's, it's anyone else who's self-employed, you know the risk of being self-employed is all, it's always a gamble. You, know, you, always, you, you might have work, you might not, but when you're freelance, you've got a lot of freedom. And it's, it's fun. It's, I've done, after the surf shops, I did other bits and pieces. I worked in a medical factory for oh, five years and then a little gap got back in there when COVID came down, so I actually had a job. But this is, it's fairly interesting. You move around, you meet different people and you get to, you get to engage a lot, but you get to use your initiative um, so it breaks from the norm. It's interesting. Living in a hotel sometimes gets quite tiresome. Mm. Um, and driving. I mean, quite, I, most of my work has been around North London for the last couple of years. They've been working on EastEnders, right? I was on EastEnders for a yeah. few months. Yeah, they built a brand new set to replace. They built the old one 35, would have been 30, 36, 37 years ago now. <clears throat> and it was a death trap. It was a, it was a, it was made out of iron girders with, with boarded fronts. So <laughs> they rebuilt the entire Albert Square of bricks and mortar so they could future-proof the project. And when you've got a brand new buildings, they all look fresh and naked and they need all the bits and pieces put in them and stuck on them. So I spent a load of time up in cherry pickers putting satellite dishes and TV aerials on the roofs and stuff like that. It was almost, it was almost like building work, some of it. Um, but then, you know, every curtain in Albert Square, we put all those up. It was, yeah, it was yeah. standard stuff. That's the handyman side of it. We didn't do much of the window dressing on that one because we weren't there when it came to them filming. We were doing the stuff to get this place right. But it was really well paid. Grateful for that one. It was a long run, but I would drive home every weekend. I need to see the sea. I want to sleep in my own bed. I want to see my friends. Yeah. So every, every week I would, I would actually you know, I'd drive home. So I'm getting sick and tired of the M4, M5, A30, but I can do it in you know, do 71 miles an hour. You can get home quite quickly. And you still cruise around uh, London on your bike, right? In between yeah, work when yeah, you're up there? Yeah, a pathetic and vain attempt to keep him fit. I saw kid. you and Keechi cruising through the streets on oh, the... Yeah, that was in... Yeah. Because yeah, that, that, was, that, was that was a sweet coincidence as well, because, you know, best mate... Um, we live three or four hours, <clears throat> three or four hours away from each other. Me and Cornwall, him in um, Warwickshire. Yeah. Never see enough of your best mates. And then Steve um, was working at the top of Boreham Wood, building. He was doing the ground clearance for the new Sky Studios, massive, massive place. Um, and yeah, he was up there working there. So he was there for, for about three or four months. So we'd, we'd get out to ride maybe once a week, twice a week. Sometimes it was winter time mainly, but yeah, we just go around blasting around town like we used to do back in the yeah. without jumping off so many things. Yeah, just yes, because I think that was when Steve was coming back from his his heart attack. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to, yeah, we just get out riding a little yeah, bit. Both of us just try and keep fit in our old age. Yeah, it's good fun. Yeah, it's nice to see. Him. What um, so future then? I guess you're going to carry on doing all this prop stuff and yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you still travel a lot though with the surfing, right? Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, surf at home in Newcastle. I'm lucky enough to live about fifty yards from the water's edge. Yeah, <clears throat> and on the back of the beach, we've got the golf course. So I've got. All my toys are in one box. I've, and you're I've, friends with Andrew Ridley, right? You, you yes, used to play yeah, golf with yeah, him, yeah. Yeah, I met, uh, yeah, I met Andrew through... From Wham, um, for the people yes, that don't know. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, yeah. yeah, lovely uh, guy, really very cultured, really yeah. sweet, always pleasant. I met him when I was at Ocean Magic Surf Shop. He came in, he used to buy boards from us. And he married the Bananarama lady, right? He married Karen, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so um, you know her as well, right? Um, yeah, vaguely, yeah. yeah. I, I don't, I've seen a lot more of Andrew see her sporadically. I think that I hadn't seen him for a couple of years properly, but... Um, right. It used to be so every Easter I didn't end up playing golf with him up at his home course just right. north of Newquay and uh, but he's I believe he's spending more time in London now. He spent a lot of time working on um, yeah. a lot of the things to, to um, maintain um, 
George Michael's spirit and stuff. Yeah, like yeah, I've seen him on interviews and stuff quite a lot the last couple yeah, of years, yeah. Lovely, lovely guy, good sir. Yeah, met him through surfing and we yeah. both played golf together. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, really, really, yeah, lovely. I bet he's got some good stories, hasn't he? Uh, he's, he's, he's a modest and quiet man. Yeah. yeah. The life he's lived, you know, yeah. if you want, you, you kind of, I guess you kind of have to pry the story. I want to, to speak to him about his car racing afterwards. Is that, you know, Is that what he did after? Yeah, yeah, I think he went and, got, went and did a bit of saloon Because he racing. walked away from it all, didn't he? He didn't, yes. yeah, didn't yeah. want to be a pop star whatever. One of the nicest things, I didn't know the story, but I guess it was out there in, in, in the general sort of circulation whatever media it might have been but um, apparently when George Michael wrote Last Christmas mm. and I've learned this through friends through oh you told me this yes yeah, um, the, the, the people who make the most money in the music credits. industry are the songwriters yes and apparently he was lovely enough to, to give them both the credits on Last Christmas right which obviously there's some royalties have been generated so that was yes. something to give Andy a stable life which is I mean, what a magnificent gesture absolutely that was, really. yeah but it's your best mate and what, that's the sort of things people do and such a sweet story I didn't know yeah. that way after I met him but uh, now he's a very suave urbane very very nice guy mm. yeah, it's just yeah, just one of those the surfing world a small world and we all do the same thing I've always likened I've always been grateful and been lucky with BMX and then surfing and always likened these two sports might sound a bit soppy but it's the two probably not many sports in the world where you can you can touch your heroes. They're your friends. Yeah. You're in the same same room in the same bar as these people. Yeah. Because <clears throat> you just happen to have some very talented mates. But it's, we would never get near Beckham. We'd never get near no. the rugby players. You're not going to get on the pitch. You're not going to hang out with these guys unless you're at school with them. But we've got this circle of friends, and both sports are the same. I know some of the best people in the world, and have hung out with them, or or been in the same arena to what to be on the gate alongside someone else, or follow someone around a track, to be in the water next to someone who's on the world tour and watch them perform. You can't go on the pitch at Wembley and feel the vibe that the players get. But I can sit in the sea anywhere around the world and if one of these guys turns up, you're next to them and you watch them. It's like, this is, you, you, you realise your place in the game. Mm-hmm. That's, that's quite sweetly humbling, but you also get impressed and you get inspired and you learn. So two of the best sports in the world and I've been lucky enough to do both of them and still pedaling a bike a bit but still in the sea. I, I surf as much as I can. And it's yeah. Well, you're still in good shape, still look good. They're both Peter Pan sports as well, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a mindset thing, definitely. We're all big kids. Mm-hmm. The longer you can deny growing up, the better, I think. Who wants to get to the other end? I'm not in a hurry. So no, no. Pretend, well, pretend it's not coming and do No. This. We're playing. We're playing. We're going out to play. Yes. When you were a kid, you went out to play. And we're still going out to play in our 50s. Yeah. So we're, we're lucky. We're yeah, lucky. absolutely. A lot, of, a lot of people from the outside look in. Because surfing is definitely a bigger game worldwide, that's another, <clears throat> it's another point I've made a few times. A lot of people look at surfers with some degree of awe. Because we're out there fucking around with Mother Nature. This mm. this awesome force of nature, which is in your deepest human, you're in a spirit, you're in a body. You, you, it's a fearful place to be, and there's these bunch of idiots out there messing around with it. It's quite daunting. I mean, a cubic meter of water weighs a metric ton. That's a lot of water being thrown at you when you're in the ocean. So, <clears throat> but to actually go out there and, and play on those things and ride it and harness that power, and, and it's very selfish. It's very self-centered because you've got that bundle of energy on a lump of water, and you're just using that bundle of energy to have a really good time get this this uh, endorphin high <clears throat> and that that lump of water you just ridden across when that arrives at the beach that wave is dead forever that that wave might have traveled halfway across the atlantic it's come 1500 miles 2000 miles mm. you get 5 10 15 seconds of sheer pleasure and fun and exhilaration out of that and after you've been on it it arrives at the sand it fizzles out on the sand it just dis- dissipates but someone stood there the water laps over your toes that wave energy has just come half around the ocean. <clears throat> you took your pleasure, you had a big smile, and it's gone for good. It's like, 
it's it's like tramping on fresh snow when you're a kid. You go in the back garden, you go, oh, I made those footprints, that was my mess. Yeah. And no one else can ever stamp on that snow like you did as a kid, because that's a little rush. It's a bit of selfish moment, a bit of self-indulgence. Mm. And surfing is like that all the time. That's why we keep doing it. We keep chasing that little buzz all the time. Some people take it to massive extremes and ride the monstrous waves. Some people ride the... They're looking for barrels getting inside the hollow waves. But sometimes just gliding across the face is, is, is good enough on a lovely day in a serene environment. The sun going down, your mates are near you, the birds are... I guess it's equivalent just kind of cruising around the track, cruising around the track at half speed, just yeah, flowing and, yeah. and enjoying it. Yeah, and there's a lot of curves. Not worrying about being the fastest or anything. And, and Waves are round and curvy and smooth. There's, yeah. this, there's an aesthetic which crosses both sports. Yeah. You, like me, you probably, I used to love going to a new track, stand on the start here and look at it. Yeah. And just taking the shapes the, and then, then <clears throat> you had to try and turn that into getting the flow around the track. Yeah. But, but it's all curved surfaces, all smooth and flowing and berms lead into another and you roll up and over jumps. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that are similar between the two sports. There's actually a crossover into golf as well, which is quite a strange one. Golf and surfing link together quite nicely in, in so much as when something is, when you hit a good ball well, and when you ride a wave nicely, you get that same little spark in your brain that makes you feel good about it. You could spend two hours in the sea, have a crap day and get one good wave, and then you come back again the next day because you have one good two hours of absolute hammerings and then you one rush. You want to come back. The golf course is the same thing. I went to a wedding in France this year I met a guy, a DJ from um, South Devon, actually, and uh, he came up with this incredible phrase. Golf is so frustrating. And he said, uh, after shooting down the course, you're like, he'd say, fuck you, golf. Mm. See you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. There was one good shot in that round. And Very like Four hours of feeling a yes. and then one little buzz. And it's like, got to do it again tomorrow. Yeah. Try and want to try and get a little yeah. bit. It's like that jump down the park when you were a kid. You kept practicing and practicing, practicing until you pulled off that move. You took yeah. an hour trying to do a one-hander. Yeah. And when it came off, it's like, Cool, do that again tomorrow. Now. Yeah, yeah, come back and try it all yeah. again tomorrow. So, yeah, very self, very self-indulgent, very selfish sports. They're all good fun. Yeah, they all lend themselves to having a good time. It's, we're going out to play with big kids, all of us. So no desire to, to slow it down, nothing, just carry on doing what you're doing, right? Yeah, if the body's moving, got to keep moving with it, haven't you? Because one day it's going to slow down. So if it's functioning, keep running with it. Right, and you tell me, you got you got um, big surf trip planning next year. Um. Maybe twenty twenty four. See how work goes. I want to because yeah, when you work, you're in big blocks, aren't you? Yeah, it could be. I mean, I'm on a two month job at the moment. Yeah, sort of filler. There, there's been you know had that year Eastenders. There's, there's stuff lined up for next year. So if I get those all out of the way, take them while they're there, mm. and then yeah, I, I, I've always wanted to come over to. Well, I've been to California. A yeah, few yeah. Times. I've seen you out early two thousand. You came out. <clears> got yeah. lucky enough. You, you looked at. You saved us from the failed Mexico trip one year. And, right. Yes. And well, how much fun did we have that year when yeah. the house with the, with the mountain bike crew in the back garden. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was fun. With, mm. with, it was, it was Steve was there, Steve Murray, Martin Murray, yes. Neil Woods, yeah, and then I'm um, Sean Palmer rocked up one night. Didn't yes, he? yeah, gave, gave his trophy to Woody because Steve Pete had kicked his ass in the snow. Right, that, that yeah, was, that was quite, that was quite tricky. That it was, was good times then. Night. Yeah, it was great fun. So Huntington uh, Beach days. I've only ever got out to HB and California in working in the surf industry. Always busy in the summer. Yeah, you took your holidays in the winter. Going to California in the winter was also a little bit underwhelming. You never got the best of it. You didn't get the hot sea. You didn't get the best south swells coming up. Mm. <clears throat> you never had the place absolutely bouncing when everyone's out there on holiday. You, I remember when you came. You was always like you get up early and do the. Was it like the radio surf watch, right? Oh, you, like yeah, for the weather and yeah, stuff. It's, yeah, it's a lot more sophisticated now. Right, that was on the phone. That was a free one eight hundred. Right. or something yeah come, those guys are still going but now you can go online you can get the nth degree i'm There's sure yeah it's more te- you, you, technology yeah, and so, yeah everything's got better everyone's going surfing more people are doing it and going mm. to better places but yeah I've, I've always wanted to do california when it's in its pomp mm. <clears throat> so if things work out um 
back end of 2024 when I come, yeah. out, come out and do a month. We'll be waiting, yeah, we'll be there. Oh, and I might even need to try it by the time you come out. It's about time. I know, I've talked about it for like 30 years. Be careful, you could change your life. <laughs> I know, that's so, what's scary. So you change your life. Good stuff, let's wrap it up. So, yeah, no, final thoughts. Thanks, shout outs. Oh, hell. All my friends, all the people who made life such a good ride so far and still doing it. Yeah. That's, that's been the best of it. Just the great memories, the fun times you've had have been awesome. And, and thanks to you guys, you four guys for arranging last night because last night kind of encapsulated all that fun. Last yeah. Night last night was one of the biggest emotional highs in a long, long time because you met so many friends who walk in the same path. Yeah. Different flavours, same direction. It's been brilliant. No, it's, um, yeah, everyone I've met who's been kind and helpful, thank you to everyone. It's, life's great and I'm still enjoying it and I'm not going to stop in as long as I can. Absolutely. Simon, great chatting as always. Thanks, Dave. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Catch you later.